We're going to continue this morning reading from the Gospel of Luke. We'll be reading Luke 4, verses 14 through 44. Jesus returned to Galilee in the power of the Spirit, and news about him spread throughout the whole countryside. He was teaching in their synagogues, and everyone praised him. He went to Nazareth, where he had been brought up, and on the Sabbath day he went to the synagogue, as was his custom. He stood up to read, and the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was handed to him. Unrolling it, he found the place where it is written, The Spirit of the Lord is on me, because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners, and recovery of sight for the blind, to set the oppressed free, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Then he rolled up the scroll, gave it back to the attendant, and sat down. The eyes of everyone in the synagogue were fastened on him. He began by saying to them, Today, this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. All spoke well of him and were amazed at the gracious words that came from his lips. Isn't this Joseph's son? They asked. Jesus said to them, Surely you will quote this proverb to me, Physician, heal yourself, and you will tell me, Do hear in your hometown what we have heard that you did in Capernaum. Truly, I tell you, he continued, no prophet is accepted in his hometown. I assure you, there were many widows in Israel in Elijah's time, when the sky was shut for three and a half years, and there was a severe famine throughout the land. Yet, Elijah was not sent to any of them, but to a widow in Zarephath, in the region of Sidon. And there were many in Israel with leprosy at the time of Elisha the prophet, yet not one of them was cleansed, only Naaman, the Syrian. All the people in the synagogue were furious when they heard this. They got up, drove him out of the town, and took him to the brow of the hill on which the town was built, in order to throw him off the cliff. But he walked right through the crowd and went on his way. Then he went down to Capernaum, a town in Galilee, and on the Sabbath he taught the people. They were amazed at his teaching, because his words had authority. In the synagogue there was a man possessed by a demon, an impure spirit. He cried out at the top of his voice, Go away! What do you want with us? Jesus of Nazareth, have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. Be quiet, Jesus said sternly. Come out of him. Then the demon threw the man down before all of them and came out without injuring him. All the people were amazed and said to each other, What words these are! With authority and power he gives orders to impure spirits, and they come out and the news about him spread throughout the surrounding area. Jesus left the synagogue and went to the home of Simon. Now Simon's mother-in-law was suffering from a high fever, and they asked Jesus to help her. So he bent over her and rebuked the fever, and it left her. She got up at once and began to wait on them. At sunset, the people brought to Jesus all who had various kinds of sickness and laying his hands on each one, he healed them. Moreover, demons came out of many people, shouting, 
you are the son of God. But he rebuked them and would not allow them to speak because they knew he was the Messiah. At daybreak, Jesus went out to a solitary place. The people were looking for him, and when they came to where he was, they tried to keep him from leaving them. But he said, I must proclaim the good news of the kingdom of God to the other towns also, because that is why I was sent. And he kept on preaching in the synagogues of Judea. And to finish up, we have a few verses from Psalm 146, reading verses six or seven and eight. He upholds the cause of the oppressed and gives food to the hungry. The Lord sets prisoners free. The Lord gives sight to the blind. The Lord lifts up those who are bowed down. The Lord loves the righteous. Thank you, Krista. As we've seen this morning, worship is not meant to be a spectator sport. It is a participatory event. It was the same on that day in Jerusalem when Jesus rode in on the donkey and the crowds, some of the Pharisees in the crowds were saying, aren't you gonna tell these people to stop? And Jesus said, if I tell them to stop, the stones are gonna cry out. You see, in the presence of the greatness of Jesus, it's only important, it's only proper that his creation responds. We're gonna see that today as Jesus begins his ministry, but I'm gonna need that energy from you this morning. This is not a message to simply sit and imbibe like you would a Netflix show or reading the news or doom scrolling, whatever you might do to occupy your time. This is a message, it's not my message, it's the message of Jesus and it is life changing and it is powerful for all those who would listen to it. So again, I'm gonna need that kind of energy from you this morning. We come to Luke chapter four in this series we've titled The Way of Salvation. And we're going to see today that the way of salvation is a way of liberty, a way of freedom, a way of release. And as Jesus begins his ministry, it's very appropriate that we look at this text on Palm Sunday because this text for Luke is going to provide kind of like the, the overview. We've been watching old movies with our kids recently and they don't trust us when we put a movie from the 80s or the 90s on. They say, Dad, the picture's so grainy. This can't be really any good. And I say, well, let's watch the trailer. And we put the trailer on and it reminds me how different trailers were back then than they are now. You see, now trailers are more like teasers, right? They, they just give you a little glimpse and the clips are short, bing, bang, boom. But in the 80s and the early 90s, the trailer would give you the summary of the whole movie in like two minutes. So you'd watch the trailer and you think, I know exactly what's gonna happen in this movie. That's sort of what this text is like. It's like one of those trailers from the 1980s and the 1990s. You could read Luke chapter four, verse 14 to 44, and you will get a synopsis, a preview of the entirety of the ministry of Jesus Christ. So again, if you don't feel like you know much about the ministry of Jesus, what exactly he came to do, or you feel like it's something foreign or forgotten for you, please tune in. You're gonna see the whole thing right here. They cried on that Palm Sunday, they cried Hosanna, which means Lord save us. 
And if you were there on that day and you were crying, Lord, save us, Lord, save me, what would you be wanting him to save you from? When you first came to God, when you, when you opened your mouth, when you vocalized a prayer, when you cracked open the Bible, what was the cry of your spirit when you said, Lord, save me? Save you from what? It's okay if you don't know fully the answer to that question because Jesus is going to give it to you. The question this morning is how would God save us through Jesus? If the way of salvation, if Jesus came to open that way, to take us on that way, to bring us to a state of salvation, what on earth does it mean to be saved? Here we're going to see that Jesus saves us by releasing us from our captivity. Jesus saves us by releasing us from our captivity and he brings us into the kingdom of God where his ways and his purposes and his righteousness and his will is accomplished. And it means joy and ecstasy for his creation. Today we're going to look at these Verses these two side-by-side accounts of Jesus in the synagogue of Nazareth and the synagogue of Capernaum. And as I said earlier, it's going to preview the entirety of his ministry. You're going to see Jesus' saving purpose as Messiah, but you're also going to see Jesus' polarizing effect on people. His saving purpose as Messiah and his polarizing effect on people. Would you pray with me as we come to God's word? Father, thank you for the faithfulness of the apostles those who walked with Jesus, to record for us through the empowerment of your spirit, your word, that we can sit here these many generations after Jesus walked the streets of Galilee. Lord, that we can sit and we can listen and that we can learn. Lord, would you make us wise for salvation? May you restore and release us this morning. In Christ's name, amen. We come to Luke chapter 4, verses 14 to 21. You have in the first two verses what Luke often does in his writings in Luke and Acts. It's a summary statement. He's going to be like your English teacher told you to be. Write a good topic sentence that tells you at the beginning of the paragraph what you're going to go into detail on later on. So here, overview, Jesus returns to Galilee in the power of the Spirit. Where was he before? If you were here last week, you remember he's in the wilderness being tempted by Satan. Just a little side note here. We often think that if we resist temptation, we will be weaker. Here, Jesus resists the temptation of the devil. Walking in the spirit, he is empowered. Here he is in the power of the spirit and news about him is spreading around the countryside. He's teaching in their synagogues and everybody praised him. And he goes up to Nazareth. It's literally about 1,500 meters elevation higher than Galilee. He went up to Nazareth where he'd been brought up, and on the Sabbath day, he went into the synagogue. And what we're going to have in the next few verses would be kind of the inaugural address, the keynote speech, uh, the, the, the main platform of Jesus inaugurating his ministry. But you got to remember, this is Nazareth, and Nazareth is kind of like the boonies. Nobody really famous wanted to be there or really wanted to come from there. You wouldn't go to Nazareth to start the redemption of creation. But Jesus is here here 
in the synagogue on the Sabbath, and Luke is going to slow it down, and it's going to be very important what takes place next. So there he is in the synagogue on the Sabbath. Now, the synagogue was the place where the, the followers of Yahweh, the Jews, they would gather, and similar to what we do in church, they would gather once a week on the Sabbath. They'd gather, and somebody from, from the congregation would come forward, and they'd pick a reading, and they'd read, and they'd talk about it. The person who was in charge of the synagogue wasn't the primary teacher. They just sort of kept the grounds and made sure everything sort of kept running. But Jesus comes in, and so it's very common. He goes, and the person who's the attendant, he uh, gives uh, the scroll to Jesus. Jesus stands up to read, as was his custom, verse 16. The scroll of the prophet Isaiah is handed to him, and now him is Jesus here, and Jesus is going to unroll the scroll of Isaiah and he's going to find the place where it was written, the Spirit of the Lord is on me. Now this is from Isaiah 61. It's part of the beautiful, grand vision that Isaiah gets of how God is going to wrap up and restore all things in God's creation. But you need to note here that Jesus picks this place. Jesus chooses what he reads. And then he's going to give a sermon. And the sermon is very simple. This is what he says. Jesus founds a place where it's written, the spirit of the Lord is on me because he's anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind, to set the oppressed free, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Then he rolled up the scroll, handed it back to the attendant and sat down. The eyes of everyone in the synagogue were fastened on him. Luke is slowing it down. He wants you to feel this moment. And Jesus began by saying to them, today, this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. Today, Jesus said. This grand vision, this messianic hope, Jesus said, this is happening now in what you just heard. It's happening now. <laughs> Amazing. Well, we should ask, what do we understand the Messiah's ministry to be? And I just want to put up four questions here that, that this quotation really tries to unpack. Who sanctions this, this messianic ministry? Who is it for? What is its effect? And, and what does it mean? All right? Now, as we come to this text, notice Luke is very keen for you, the reader, to understand, and he's keen for Theophilus to understand the role of the Spirit, right? This is God's work. So the Spirit landed upon Jesus in his baptism in bodily form as a dove. Then the Spirit leads Jesus into the wilderness. Then Jesus comes out of the wilderness empowered by the Spirit. And here Jesus is in the synagogue. He opens the scroll of the Word of God. And in this, he goes right to the place and he says, The Spirit of the Lord is on me because he has anointed me. And if you take a, a rough literal translation, for the proclamation of the good news to the poor by me. There's an emphasis on me. Jesus understands his ministry is sanctioned by the Spirit of God. The Holy Spirit authorizes Jesus' ministry. Who is it for? It's for the poor. That's what he says. He has sent me to proclaim good news, literally to gospel 
to gospel to the poor. We should ask, who, who are the poor? Who are the poor? You might think of the poor as people who are economically impoverished. They don't have the means to provide for their material needs. That's one way of conceiving of the poor. It's probably the predominant way that we perceive of the poor. We might perceive of the poor as somebody who is going through a rough time. And you say, oh, poor so-and-so. Isn't that, isn't that so sad what they're facing right now? Poor, you know. We were reciting Disney songs this week. We recalled Ursula's song, Poor Unfortunate Souls. Right? She says to all her little minions. Someone going through a hard time. There is strong warrant within the text of the Gospel of Luke to understand the poor as kind of a cipher for, for really everyone who has something wrong with them, everyone who is, is, is an outsider, everyone who, who doesn't quite measure up, doesn't quite have the means. So you can be poor in a physical sense because you have a medical condition. You can be poor in a material sense. You can be poor because in this culture you're a woman and you don't have much say or much rights. You can be poor because you're oppressed by a demon. You see, in the West, we like to really compartmentalize all these different aspects. But Luke understands Jesus' ministry is holistic. So it's not as if he's only going to deal with the spiritual side and he's not going to deal with the economic side or he's not going to deal with the, with the physical well-being or, the, or fill in the blank. Jesus' ministry is to the poor. Who else is it for? It's to those who are captive. To those who are blind. To those who are oppressed. This is who Jesus came to save. Now, I want to ask you. Are you poor? Are you captive? Are you blind? Are you oppressed? Controversy is going to follow Jesus throughout the entirety of his ministry, and it's a massive theme through, through Luke's gospel and really through all the synoptic gospels. The people who do not get Jesus are the people who are already all right. They're the people who do not see themselves as poor. They're the people who do not see themselves as captive. They're the people who, in John's gospel, it's quite explicit, Jesus says, because you say you see, you are blind. It's the people who are not being oppressed. It's the people who are in control. So I got good news and bad news for you this morning. The good news is, if you feel out of control, if you feel impoverished, if you feel like you have no strength, if you feel like you've been caught and enslaved, if you feel like you don't see and you need somebody to, to paint the way for you, if you feel like you are at the mercy of forces, spiritual and material, greater than yourself, well, good news, Jesus came for you. 
But I got bad news for you if you are here in this life and you are trying to accumulate wealth for yourself. If you are here in this life and you are trying to exert power, if you are trying to manage and control and create and to build your own kingdom and your own empire and set up your own security and manage people and manage funds and manage everything so that life works for you. You're going to have a problem with Jesus. Because you don't get to secure yourself in this life without climbing on the backs of other people. You don't get to secure yourself while simultaneously following the way of a savior who would suffer and die. You don't get to exploit and exert your rights while simultaneously paying the cost of discipleship. These two things are opposed. And this explains partly why Jesus' ministry is so polarizing. Come to that in a second. Notice the effect The poor receive the good news. Why is it the poor are always the last to be educated? Why does it seem like the poor are always the ones who don't have great access to information? But here Jesus says these people are going to hear it. Here he says the prisoners are going to be proclaimed release. In fact, there's two things that are unique about this citation of Isaiah 61. It's, it's called what the scholars would, would phrase a mixed text. So Jesus recites the bulk of Isaiah 61, but he borrows a little bit from Isaiah 58, verse 6. And he inserts it there in the middle where he says to proclaim release for the prisoners. And that's at the very middle of this statement, and it's a double expression. It's a repetition of this idea of release, and it's getting to the heart. Jesus is saying, this is the effect of my ministry. It's as if the devil has gone throughout the earth and he has captured all the image bearers of God. They've all been held captive to sin. And Jesus has the master key and he's going around and he says, I'm just going to unlock all these. I'm going to unlock all these doors. I'm going to remove all these shackles. That's what Jesus says he's going to do. It's release. So what does it mean? All of this means, verse 19, that Jesus is proclaiming the year of the Lord's favor, the, ex the, the acceptable time of the Lord, this window of salvation. Now, the other unique thing about this passage is that Jesus stops the quotation of Isaiah mid-sentence, mid-sentence. Because the very rest of this sentence says, and the day of vengeance of our God. So the text of Isaiah 61, verse 2, if you pull it up in your Bible and read it, it'll say, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of vengeance of our God. But Jesus stops. He breaks between the year of the Lord's favor and the day of vengeance of our God. You say, why did he omit that? Now, you can't tell me it's by accident. It's not as if Jesus is playing Bible roulette and he just opens the scroll and he's like, boom, hey, let's see, I'll read this today. No, he's in charge of this very moment. And he knows exactly what he's saying. 
And he understands that right now in Nazareth in this synagogue, a window of God's grace and favor is opening. Yes, the window will close and there will be the day of vengeance and the judgment of our God when he will set even those who oppose him fully and finally upon his wrath. But right now there's this there's this year, there's this acceptable time, and then Jesus stands and he says, today, today, right now, this is happening, folks. Now, uh, we said Jesus' ministry is polarizing, but I want you to see this is his purpose. His purpose is your release. His purpose is liberty. I'm going to ask you again, are you free? Are you free from the things that held you captive? Honestly, ask yourself that question. Jesus didn't came to sell salvation insurance. He did not come to say, well, look, there's this thing called hell coming, and just like a flood, you know, it might be a one in a hundred years, it might, might be in your lifetime, it might be, you know, it might be later. No, there's this day of judgment thing, you know, we call it acts of God, and if, if you know, if you just want to be safe here, sign on this dotted line, and, and here's your salvation insurance, and then if you ever have to if anyone comes to claim or collect on the damages, well, don't worry, I'll cover it for you. That's how a lot of us in the West think about what Jesus came to do. Can I tell you, it is a whole lot deeper than that. It is a whole lot richer and truer than that. Christ came to transform you. That's why it's in our vision at this church. Our vision is to see men, women, and children transformed by God's word and his spirit for faith in Christ, that you would become somebody who knows the living God and in the knowledge of God, you would be renewed and you would not be held captive to sin anymore. You would not be enslaved to your desires and your appetites. You would not be oppressed by spiritual evil, but you would know in your soul the liberty and the release and the joy that comes through beholding the glory of Christ and cherishing and loving and prizing him above all else. That is what Jesus came for you to do. He came that you would be free. He came that you would be liberated. He didn't come to set up another set of hoops for you to try to muscle your way through so that you can then get into God's good books. You were already in the bad books. You were helpless. There was nothing you could do. You needed to be released. You needed to have your chains unlocked. You needed to have the jail door pulled open. And you needed to have your eyes opened. This is what Jesus came to do. But his ministry is polarizing. The response in Nazareth is very interesting. All spoke well of him and were amazed at his gracious words. These are really nice things they're saying to each other. And then they say, isn't this Joseph's son? Now, when we first read this, we, we can sort of read into it a negative thing, like, oh, this is Joseph's son, as if Joseph was some really bad guy. But Luke has told us in chapter 2 that Jesus grew in wisdom and favor with God and people. So there's a sense that in which he was, he was sort of known a little bit already in Nazareth, and, and he was beloved. So we, maybe we shouldn't read this as, as, hey, is this Joseph's son? You know, Joseph, that guy. But more like, hey, this is Joseph's son. Sort of like how you might feel on awards night. That's my kid. That's, that's my company. I work for them. Uh, this sense of pride, this, this sense of, hey, 
He's one of ours. Hey, do you hear what a good preacher? That's my pastor. That's my church. That's my worship team. That's, my, that's the ministry I participate in. This, this sense of pride that, that, that he is one of ours, that's the sense here of what's going on in Nazareth. And, but Jesus, he's going to shock them, and, and he doesn't want a bar of it. He says, surely you're going to quote this proverb to me, physician, heal yourself. Now, there's two ways to take this. One is, hey, you're a doctor? Prove it. You can take this as a, as a prove it sort of statement. But again, it's more likely, hey, doctor, take care of yourself. You know, you went to, you showed up at the GP and they're hacking and they're spluttering and, and they're, they're coughing and sneezing all over you and they, they, you know, they got bad skin and they're, you know, they're just very disheveled and unkept. You might be like, should I take in medical advice from you? You don't really seem to look after yourself. So the proverb was used in that day to, to kind of say, hey, take care of home first, you know. Take care of yourself, take care of your home first, and then you go and you help other people. So Jesus says, you're going to get upset at me. You're going to tell me, hey, take care of us. You look after little old, little old Nazareth here. We're going to ride your star to fame, Jesus, and, and you just look after us. And you're going to say, do here what you did. Do in your hometown what we've heard that you've done in Capernaum. Jesus won't have a bar, but truly I tell you, he continued, no prophet is accepted in his hometown. I assure you there, will be, there were many widows in Israel in Elijah's time when the sky was, about, was shut for three and a half years. And he goes on to reference Elijah and the healing of Naaman. Excuse me, Elisha and the healing of Naaman. What is Jesus doing? He brings up two prophets from the Old Testament, two of the most famous prophets. And the thing in both of these instances, even though they did minister to Israel, Jesus cites two examples where God sent them out of Israel, out of their people, to the Gentiles. Jesus is saying to those in Nazareth, you can't hold me here. I didn't come for this little group and, 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 and to make you feel great. Jesus said, uh, my ministry is to the outsiders. Remember, I, I'm here to release the captives. I'm here to proclaim good news to the poor. And it's amazing how these people who go, Jesus' words are gracious, to now they're angry. They take him to the edge of the hill. They're about to throw him off a cliff, but he walked right through the crowd and went on his way. Again, echoes of what's going to happen to Jesus. How on Palm Sunday, he's celebrated as the Messiah, the Savior who's finally come. But then only a week later, they hang him up on a cross. And they say ironically to him, you're the Messiah, come down and save yourself and us. Again, this preview of Jesus' ministry. But then we have this other picture in Capernaum, which is quite different. He goes to Capernaum. He, it's on the Sabbath. The people are amazed. But this time, they're not amazed by his gracious words. They're amazed at his authority. And while he's in the midst of teaching in the synagogue, a man with a demon, an impure spirit, Luke tells us, cries out at the top of his, top of his voice. And this spirit, the, the, the NIV says, go away. It's probably better translated, leave us alone. Leave us alone. What do you want to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. Now, what's going on here? Notice the demons are expressing some familiarity with Jesus. Notice it's also disruptive of his teaching ministry in the synagogue. 
Notice also that the demon is trying to identify and name Jesus to exert some sort of control or some sort of, sort of power over him. The demon's trying to say, I know who you are, Jesus of Nazareth. You are the Holy One of God. I'm going to tell you what to do. Leave us alone. But note the familiarity between the Holy One of God and the evil spiritual forces. Be quiet, Jesus says sternly. Come out of him. And the demon withdrew. Threw the man down. That's not a light term. He didn't just sort of fall over. The word is he slammed him to the ground. But the man came up without being injured. All the people are amazed at each other. Again, similar response. What words these are with authority and power. He gives orders to impure spirits and they come out. And good news begins to spread about him. Afterwards, he leaves the synagogue. He goes to the home of Simon, and his mother-in-law is there suffering with a fever. And in a very similar construction, Jesus speaks to the fever, and the fever departs. Then later on at sunset, once the Sabbath day is over and the people are now allowed to engage in physical activity again, the sun is setting. Now they start bringing all kinds of sick people to Jesus. Verse 40 all who had various kinds of sickness and laying his hands on each one, he healed them. Moreover, demons came out of many people shouting, you are the son of God, but he rebuked them and he would not allow them to speak because they knew he was the Messiah. Jesus, with word and with touch, is releasing people. He's freeing people. He's restoring people. What could all of this mean? In Leviticus 25, we read of something called the year of Jubilee. The year of Jubilee would happen once in every 50 years under the Old Covenant. And it would start right after the Day of Atonement, right after the day when all the sins of the people of Israel would be forgiven for the past year. Right after that would start the year of Jubilee. And a lot of Things happened in the year of Jubilee. If you had a debt, it was forgiven. Didn't matter how much you owed, you didn't know it anymore. If you had sold yourself into slavery to, to provide and, and, and to, to hire yourself out, if you came under the authority of somebody else, well, guess what? You weren't a slave anymore. You were released from that. If you had sold your property and, and you, you had given up your home and, and your territory because things hadn't gone well for you, in the year of Jubilee, guess what? It was given back to you. It was the year of Jubilee. Jesus, in his ministry, in his purpose, in his work, and his Messiah, is coming to the people of Israel, and he is stepping into the motif of a year of Jubilee, and what he's saying to all those who will listen is, you're going to be healed, your debts are going to be forgiven, all the things you lost are going to be restored. You're going to be brought back into what you were meant to be. And most of all, you're going to be put right with God. Verse 42, this time the crowds come out and they find Jesus in a solitary place. Again, here he is on the edge of a town, but this time he's by himself. And as they come now to the edge of the town, they're not coming to push him off. They're coming to say, Jesus, we want you to stay. Where are you going? Jesus, we need you. 
Again, that polarizing response. Some people love him, some people hate him. And here, listen to what Jesus says. As they tried to keep him from leaving them, he says, I must proclaim the good news of the kingdom of God. The rule and the reign of your creator. Oh, brothers and sisters, I hope it is abundantly clear for you this morning, maybe clearer than it has ever been in your life. It, sh- it should and it must and it has to be clear that everything wrong in this world, everything wrong in this life, all the sin that enslaves you, all the brokenness, the disease, the healing, all of this is a result, is a result of our rebellion and captivity to sin and to Satan. Everything. All of it. But Jesus comes to bring the kingdom of God. And starting with your spirit, he will renew you and he will give you new life. So that even if outwardly you are wasting away, Paul would write, even though outwardly things might be falling apart and you may never get and see and enjoy the full prosperity here in this life, but that renewal that takes place of the inner being, the inner man, the inner woman, that that person who's made in God's image is restored by Jesus Christ. And in that restoration, you are a new thing. The old is gone. The new has come. Why? Because God has finally said to Satan, to rebellious men and women, time's up. Enough. No more. I've come to redeem my lost image bearers. The people that I spoke into existence, the people that I crafted from the dust of the ground, the people that I formed and knit together, the souls that I created, these people I have come to reclaim. As Jesus said, I did not come to save the righteous, I come to save the sinners. To redeem and restore that which was lost. Jesus said, you can't own me. I must go and I must proclaim the kingdom of God, the reign of God. And this kingdom of God starts with the revival of your spirit. The new life that's breathed into you. And then it works itself out. And this church is to be a reflection in the smallest way of the kingdom of God. A space, a place, a group of people who bow to the authority, not of sin or of Satan, but bow to the authority of the risen Jesus. And so I just want to ask you, are you in captivity? Are you bound? Let the Savior free you. That's why he came. The only people that's threatening to, the only people who don't want to be released, are the people who think they got it. The people who think they're under control. The people who say, I can manage it. The people who say, no, I'm not blind. I can see things perfectly. And this is what I want, and I'm going to go get it. Those are the people 
who don't want this Jesus. Before you leave today, ask yourself, am I wearing chains? Or worse, am I picking them back up? Why? What good ever came of that? And the good news is that the Savior who loves you still loves you, and his power is still powerful. As the band comes forward and we're going to prepare to sing, I want to share with you one last thing, that even though Jesus' ministry is polarizing, it is powerful. You see, the Nazarenes couldn't throw him off the cliff. Those living in Capernaum, though they begged him to stay, though they surrounded him and, with need and said, said, we want you to do all this for us, it wasn't going to stop him because Jesus, anointed by the Spirit, was walking in the purposes of God to proclaim good news. Do you need to hear good news? You don't need to go any further. Let's pray. Father, would you bless? Would you restore? Would you release? those who are bound. Father, we pray for a movement of your spirit that we would see that year of your favor, the Jubilee, that we would know it and live it and proclaim it to the glory of your grace. Amen.